Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with Saul Good Streaming at SaulGood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to SaulGood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. Elevate your daily routine with the serenity of SaulGoodSounds.com. Perfect for those on the go. Immerse in premium ad-free sounds for just $10 a month. Enhance focus and relaxation. Visit SaulGoodSounds.com now and transform your everyday. Part 3 the production of absolute surplus value. Chapter 10. The Working Day. Section 5. The Struggle for a Normal Working Day. Compulsory laws for the extension of the working day from the middle of the 14th to the end of the 17th century. What is a working day? What is the length of time during which capital may consume the labor power whose daily value it buys? How far may the working day be extended beyond the working time necessary for the reproduction of labor power itself? It has been seen that to these questions capital replies, the working day contains the full 24 hours, with the deduction of the few hours of repose without which labor power absolutely refuses its services again. Hence, it is self-evident that the laborer is nothing else, his whole life through, than labor power that therefore all his disposable time is by nature and law labor time, to be devoted to the self-expansion of capital. Time for education, for intellectual development, for the fulfilling of social functions and for social intercourse, for the free play of his bodily and mental activity, even the rest time of Sunday, and that in a country of Sabbatarians, moonshine. Footnote in England, even now, occasionally in rural districts, a laborer is condemned to imprisonment for desecrating the Sabbath by working in his front garden. The same laborer is punished for breach of contract if he remains away from his metal, paper, or glass works on a Sunday, even if it be from a religious whim. The Orthodox Parliament will hear nothing of the Sabbath-breaking if it occurs in the process of expanding capital. A memorial, August 1863, in which the London day-laborers in fish and poultry shops asked for the abolition of Sunday labor, states that their work lasts for the first six days of the week on an average fifteen hours a day, and on Sunday eight to ten hours. From this same memorial we learn also that the delicate gourmands among the aristocratic hypocrite of Exeter Hall especially encouraged this Sunday labor. These holy ones, so zealous in Cuta Curanda, show their Christianity by the humility with which they bear the overwork, the privations, and the hunger of others. Obsequum ventris istis, the laborers, perniciosis est. End of footnote. But in its blind, unrestrainable passion, its werewolf hunger for surplus labor, capital oversteps not only the moral, but even the merely physical maximum bounds of the working day. It usurps the time for growth, development, and healthy maintenance of the body. It steals the time required for the consumption of fresh air and sunlight. It higgles over mealtime, 
incorporating it where possible with the process of production itself, so that food is given to the laborer as to a mere means of production, as coal is supplied to the boiler, grease and oil to the machinery. It reduces the sound sleep needed for the restoration, reparation, refreshment of the bodily powers to just so many hours of torpor as the revival of an organism, absolutely exhausted, renders essential. It is not the normal maintenance of the labor power which is to determine the limits of the working day, it is the greatest possible daily expenditure of labor power, no matter how deceased, compulsory, and painful it may be, which is to determine the limits of the laborer's period of repose. Capital cares nothing for the length of life of labor power. All that concerns it is simply and solely the maximum of labor power that can be rendered fluent in a working day. It attains this end by shortening the extent of the laborer's life, as a greedy farmer snatches increased produce from the soil by robbing it of its fertility. The capitalistic mode of production, essentially the production of surplus value, the absorption of surplus labor, produces thus, with the extension of the working day, not only the deterioration of human labor power by robbing it of its normal, moral and physical conditions of development and function, it produces also the premature exhaustion and death of its labor power itself. Footnote. Quote, we have given in our previous reports the statements of several experienced manufacturers to the effect that over hours certainly tend prematurely to exhaust the working power of the men. Loco Citato, 64, page Roman 13, end of footnote. It extends the laborer's time of production during a given period by shortening it his actual lifetime. But the value of the labor power includes the value of the commodities necessary for the reproduction of the worker or for the keeping up of the working class. If, then, the unnatural extension of the working day that capital necessarily strives after in its unmeasured passion for self-expansion shortens the length of life of the individual laborer, and therefore the duration of his labor power, the forces used up have to be replaced at a more rapid rate, and the sum of the expenses for the reproduction of labor power will be greater." just as in a machine the part of its value to be reproduced every day is greater the more rapidly the machine is worn out. It would seem, therefore, that the interest of capital itself points in the direction of a normal working day. The slave owner buys his laborer as he buys his horse. If he loses his slave, he loses capital that can only be restored by new outlay in the slave mart. But, quote, the rice grounds of Georgia or the swamps of the Mississippi may be fatally injurious to the human constitution, but the waste of human life which the cultivation of these districts necessitates is not so great that it cannot be repaired from the teeming preserves of Virginia and Kentucky. Considerations of economy, moreover, which, under a natural system, afford some security for humane treatment by identifying the master's interest with the slave's preservation, when once trading in slaves is practiced, become reasons for wrecking to the uttermost the toil of the slave. For, when his place can at once be supplied from foreign preserves, the duration of his life becomes a matter of less moment than its productiveness while it lasts. It is accordingly a maxim of slave management, in slave-important countries, that the most effective economy is that which takes out of the human chattel, in the shortest space of time, the utmost amount of exertion it is capable of putting forth. 
It is in tropical culture, where annual profits often equal the whole capital of plantations, that negro life is most recklessly sacrificed. It is the agriculture of the West Indies, which has been for centuries prolific of fabulous wealth, that has engulfed millions of the African race. It is in Cuba, at this day, whose revenues are reckoned by millions, and whose planters are princes, that we see in the servile class the coarsest fare, the most exhausting and unremitting toil, and even the absolute destruction of a portion of its numbers every year. End of quote. Footnote. Cairns, The Slave Power, page 110 and 111, and a footnote. Mutato nomine de te fabula narratur. For slave trade, read labor market. For Kentucky and Virginia, Ireland and the agricultural districts of England, Scotland and Wales. For Africa, Germany. We heard how overwork thinned the ranks of the bakers in London. Nevertheless, the London labor market is always overstocked with German and other candidates for death in the bakeries. Pottery, as we saw, is one of the shortest-lived industries. Is there any want, therefore, of potters? Josiah Wedgwood, the inventor of modern pottery, himself originally a common workman, said in 1785, before the House of Commons, that the whole trade employed from 15,000 to 20,000 people. Footnote. John Ward the borough of Stoke-upon-Trent, London, 1843, page 42, and a footnote. In the year 1861, the population alone of the town centres of this industry in Great Britain numbered 101,302. The cotton trade has existed for ninety years. It has existed for three generations of the English race, and I believe I may safely say that during that period it has destroyed nine generations of factory operatives. End of quote. Footnote. Ferrand's speech in the House of Commons, 27th April, 1863. End of footnote. No doubt in certain epochs of feverish activity the labor market shows significant gaps. In 1834, e.g., but then the manufacturers proposed to the poor law commissioners that they should send the surplus population of the agricultural districts to the north with the explanation that the manufacturers would absorb and use it up. Footnote. Those were the very words used by the cotton manufacturers. Loco citato. End of footnote. Quote, Agents were appointed with the consent of the poor law commissioners. An office was set up in Manchester to which lists were sent of those workpeople in the agricultural districts wanting employment, and their names were registered in books. The manufacturers attended at these offices and selected such persons as they chose. When they had selected such persons as their once required, they gave instructions to have them forwarded to Manchester, and they were sent, ticketed like bales of goods, by canals or with carriers, others tramping on the road, and many of them were found on the way lost and half-starved. This system had grown up unto a regular trade. This house will hardly believe it, but I tell them that this traffic in human flesh was as well kept up. They were in effect as regularly sold to these Manchester manufacturers as slaves are sold to the cotton growers in the United States. In 1860, the cotton trade was at its zenith. The manufacturers again found that they were short of hands. They applied to the flesh agents, as they are called. Those agents sent to the southern downs of England, to the pastures of Dorsetshire, to the glades of Devonshire, 
to the people tending kine in Wiltshire, but they sought in vain. The surplus population was absorbed. End of quote. The Berry Garden said, on the completion of the French treaty, that 10,000 additional hands could be absorbed by Lancashire, and that 30,000 or 40,000 will be needed. After the flesh agents and sub-agents had in vain sought through the agricultural districts, quote, a deputation came up to London and waited on the right honourable gentleman, Mr. Villiers, President of the Poor Law Board, with a view of obtaining poor children from certain union houses for the mills of Lancashire. End of quote. Footnote. Loco citato. Mr. Villiers, despite the best of intentions on his part, was legally obliged to refuse the requests of the manufacturers. These gentlemen, however, attained their end through the obliging nature of the local poor law boards. Mr. A. Redgrave, inspector of factories, asserts that this time the system under which orphans and pauper children were treated legally as apprentices was not accompanied with the old abuses. On these abuses, see Engels, loco citato. Although in one case there certainly was abuse of this system in respect to a number of girls and young women brought from the agricultural districts of Scotland into Lancashire and Cheshire. Under this system, the manufacturer entered into a contract with the workhouse authorities for a certain period. He fed, clothed, and lodged the children, and gave them a small allowance of money. A remark of Mr. Redgrave to be quoted directly seems strange, especially if we consider that even among the years of prosperity of the English cotton trade, the year 1860 stands unparalleled, and that, besides, wages were exceptionally high. For this extraordinary demand for work had to contend with the depopulation of Ireland, with unexampled emigration from the English and Scots agricultural districts to Australia and America, with an actual diminution of the population in some of the English agricultural districts, in consequence partly of an actual breakdown of the vital force of the labourers, partly of the already affected dispersion of the disposable population through the dealers in human flesh. Despite all this, Mr. Redgrave says... This kind of labor, however, would only be sought after when none other could be procured, for it is a high-priced labor. The ordinary wages of a boy of thirteen would be about four shillings per week, but to lodge, to clothe, to feed, and to provide medical attendance and proper superintendence for fifty or one hundred of these boys, and to set aside some remuneration for them, could not be accomplished for four shillings a head per week. Report of the Inspector of Factories for 30th April, 1860, page 27. Mr. Redgrave forgets to tell us how the labourer himself can do all this for his children out of their four shillings a week wages, when the manufacturer cannot do it for the fifty or one hundred children lodged, boarded, superintended altogether. To guard against false conclusions from the text, I ought here to remark that the English cotton industry, since it was placed under the Factory Act of 1850, with its regulations of labour time, etc., must be regarded as the model industry of England. The English cotton operative is in every respect better off than his continental companion in misery. The Prussian factory operative labours at least ten hours per week more than his English competitor, and, if employed at his own loom in his own house, his labour is not restricted to even those additional hours. Report of the Inspector of Factories 31st of October, 1855, page 103. 
Redgrave, the factory inspector mentioned above, after the industrial exhibition in 1851, travelled on the continent, especially in France and Germany, for the purpose of inquiring into the conditions of the factories. Of the Prussian operative, he says, he receives a remuneration sufficient to procure the simple fare, and to supply the slender comforts to which he has been accustomed. He lives upon a coarse fare, and works hard, wherein his position is subordinate to that of the English operative. Report of the Inspector of Factories, 31st October, 1855, page 85. End of footnote. What experience shows to the capitalist, generally, is a constant excess of population, i.e., an excess in relation to the momentary requirements of surplus labor absorbing capital, although this excess is made up of generations of human beings, stunted, short-lived, swiftly replacing each other, plucked, so to say, before maturity. Footnote. The overworked die off with strange rapidity, but the places of those who perish are instantly filled, and a frequent change of persons makes no alteration in this scene. England and America, London, 1833, Volume 1, page 55, by E. G. Wakefield. End of footnote. And indeed, experience shows to the intelligent observer with what swiftness and grip the capitalist mode of production, dating, historically speaking, only from yesterday, has seized the vital power of the people by the very root shows how the degeneration of the industrial population is only retarded by the constant absorption of primitive and physically uncorrupted elements from the country, shows how even the country laborers, in spite of fresh air and the principle of natural selection that works so powerfully amongst them, and only permits the survival of the strongest, are already beginning to die off. Footnote See Public Health Sixth Report of the Medical Officer of the Privy Council, 1863 published in London, 1864. This report deals especially with the agricultural laborers. Sutherland is commonly represented as a highly improved county, but recent inquiry has discovered that even there, in districts once famous for fine men and gallant soldiers, the inhabitants have degenerated into a meager and stunted race. In the healthiest situations, on hillsides fronting the sea, the faces of their famished children are as pale as they could be in the foul atmosphere of a London alley. W. T. H. Thornton. Overpopulation and its Remedy. Loco Citato, pages 74 and 75. They resemble, in fact, the 30,000 gallant Highlanders whom Glasgow picks together in its wains and closes with prostitutes and thieves. End of footnote. Capital, that has such good reasons for denying the sufferings of the legions of workers that surround it, is in practice moved as much and as little by the sight of the coming degradation and final depopulation of the human race as by the probable fall of the earth into the sun. In every stock-jobbing swindle every one knows that some time or other the crash must come, but every one hopes that it may fall on the head of his neighbor, after he himself has caught the shower of gold and placed it in safety. Après moi, le déluge, is the watchword of every capitalist and of every capitalist nation. Hence capital is reckless of the health or length of life of the laborer, unless under compulsion from society. Footnote. Quote, but though the health of a population is so important a fact of the national capital, we are afraid it must be said that the class of employers of labor have not been the most forward to guard and cherish this treasure. 
the consideration of the health of the operatives was forced upon the mill owners. Times, November 5th, 1861. The men of the West Riding became the clothiers of mankind. The health of the workpeople was sacrificed, and the lace in a few generations must have degenerated. But a reaction set in. Lord Shaftesbury's bill limited the hours of children's labor, etc. Report of the Register General for October 1861. and the footnote. To the outcry as to the physical and mental degradation, the premature death, the torture of overwork, it answers, ought these to trouble us since they increase our profits? But looking at things as a whole, all this does not, indeed, depend on the good or ill will of the individual capitalist. Free competition brings out the inherent laws of capitalist production in the shape of external coercive laws having power over every individual capitalist. Footnote. We therefore find, e.g., that in the beginning of 1863, 26 firms owning extensive potteries in Staffordshire, amongst others, Josiah Wedgwood and Sons, petitioned in a memorial for some legislative enactment. Competition with other capitalists permits them no voluntary limitation of working time for children, etc. Much as we deplore the evils before mentioned, it would not be possible to prevent them by any scheme of agreement between the manufacturers taking all these points into consideration, we have come to the conviction that some legislative enactment is wanted. Children's Employment Commission, Report 1, 1863, page 322. Most recently, a much more striking example offers. The rise in the price of cotton during a period of feverish activity had induced the manufacturers in Blackburn to shorten, by mutual consent, the working time in their mills during a certain fixed period. This period terminated about the end of November 1871. Meanwhile, the wealthier manufacturers, who combined spinning with weaving, used the diminution of production resulting from this agreement to extend their own business and thus to make great profits at the expense of the small employers. The latter thereupon turned in their extremity to the operatives, urged them earnestly to agitate for the nine-hour system, and promised contributions in money to this end. End of footnote. The establishment of a normal working day is the result of centuries of struggle between capitalist and laborer. The history of this struggle shows two opposed tendencies. Compare, e.g., the English factory legislation of our time with the English labor statutes from the 14th century to well into the middle of the 18th. Footnote. The labor statutes, the like of which were enacted at the same time in France, the Netherlands, and elsewhere, were first formally repealed in England in 1813, long after the changes in methods of production had rendered them obsolete. And the footnote. Whilst the modern factory acts compulsorily shortened the working day, the earlier statutes tried to lengthen it by compulsion. Of course, the pretensions of capital and embryo, when beginning to grow, it secures the right of absorbing a quantum sufficient of surplus labor, not merely by the force of economic relations, but by the help of the state, appear very modest when put face to face with the concessions that, growling and struggling, it has to make in its adult condition. It takes centuries ere the free laborer, thanks to the development of capitalistic production, agrees, i.e., is compelled by social conditions to sell the whole of his active life, his very capacity for work, for the price of the necessaries of life, his birthright for a mess of pottage. 
Hence, it is natural that the lengthening of the working day, which capital, from the middle of the 14th to the end of the 17th century, tries to impose by state measures on adult laborers, approximately coincides with the shortening of the working day which, in the second half of the 19th century, has here and there been effected by the state to prevent the coining of children's blood into capital. That which today, e.g. in the state of Massachusetts, until recently the freest state of the North American Republic, has been proclaimed as a statutory limit of the labor of children under twelve, was in England, even in the middle of the seventeenth century, the normal working day of able-bodied artisans, robust laborers, athletic blacksmiths. Footnote. Quote, no child under twelve years of age shall be employed in any manufacturing establishment more than ten hours in one day. End of quote. General Statutes of Massachusetts, 63, Chapter 12. The various statutes were passed between 1836 and 1858. Quote, Labor performed during a period of ten hours on any day in all cotton, woolen, silk, paper, glass, and flax factories or in manufactories of iron and brass, shall be considered a legal day's labor, and be it enacted that hereafter no minor engaged in any factory shall be holden or required to work more than ten hours in any day, or sixty hours in any week, and that hereafter no minor shall be admitted as a worker under the age of ten years in any factory within this state. State of New Jersey. An act to limit the hours of labor, etc. Paragraph 1 and 2. Law of 18th March, 1851. Quote, no minor who has attained the age of 12 years and is under the age of 15 years shall be employed in any manufacturing establishment more than 11 hours in any one day, nor before 5 o'clock in the morning, nor after 7.30 in the evening. End of quote. Revised Statutes of the State of Rhode Island, etc. Chapter 139, paragraph 23, 1st of July, 1857. End of footnote. The first Statute of Laborers, 23 Edward III, 1349, found its immediate pretext, not its cause, for legislation of this kind lasts centuries after the pretext for it has disappeared, in the great plague that decimated the people, so that, as a Tory writer says, the difficulty of getting men to work on reasonable terms, i.e. at a price that left their employers at a reasonable quantity of surplus labor, grew to such a height as to be quite intolerable. Footnote. Sophisms of Free Trade, 7th edition, London, 1850, page 205, 9th edition, page 253. This same Tory, moreover, admits that Acts of Parliament regulating wages, but against the laborer and in favor of the master, lasted for the long period of 464 years. Population grew. These laws were then found and really became unnecessary and burdensome. Loco Citato, page 206, end of footnote. Reasonable wages were, therefore, fixed by law as well as the limits of the working day. The latter point, the only one that here interests us, is repeated in the statute of 1496, Henry Seventh. The working day for all artificers and field laborers from March to September ought, according to this statute, which, however, could not be enforced, to last from five in the morning to between seven and eight in the evening. But the meal times consist of one hour for breakfast, one and a half hours for dinner, and half an hour for noon meat. 
i.e. exactly twice as much as under the Factory Acts now in force. Footnote. In reference to this statute, J. Wade, with truth, remarks, From the statement above, i.e. with regard to the statute, it appears that in 1496 the diet was considered equivalent to one-third of the income of an artificer and one-half the income of a laborer, which indicates a greater degree of independence among the working classes than prevails at present, for the board, both of laborers and artificers, would now be reckoned at a much higher proportion of their wages. J. Wade, History of the Middle and Working Classes, pages 24, 25, and 577. The opinion that this difference is due to the difference in the price relations between food and clothing then and now is refuted by the most cursory glance at Chronicon Preciosum, etc., by Bishop Fleetwood, 1st edition, London, 1707, 2nd edition, London, 1745. End the footnote. In winter, work was to last from five in the morning until dark, with the same intervals. A statute of Elizabeth of 1562 leaves the length of the working day for all laborers, hired for daily or weekly wage, untouched, but aims at limiting the intervals to two and a half hours in the summer, or to two in the winter. Dinner is only to last one hour, and the afternoon sleep of half an hour is only allowed between the middle of May and the middle of August. For every hour of absence, one penny is to be subtracted from the wage. In practice, however, the conditions were much more favorable to the laborers than in the statute book. William Petty, the father of political economy, and to some extent the founder of statistics, says in a work that he published in the last third of the seventeenth century, quote, Laboring men, then meaning field laborers, work ten hours per diem and make twenty meals per week, viz. three a day for working days and two on Sundays, whereby it is plain that if they could fast on Friday nights and dine in one hour and a half, whereas they take two, from eleven to one, thereby thus working one-twentieth more and spending one-twentieth less, the above-mentioned tax might be raised. End of quote. Footnote. W. Petty, Political Anatomy of Ireland, Verben Sapienti, 1672, edition 1691, page 10, and the footnote. Was not Dr. Andrew Ure right in crying down the Twelve Hours Bill of 1833 as a retrogression to the times of the Dark Ages? It is true these regulations contained in the statute mentioned by Petty apply also to apprentices, but the condition of child labor, even at the end of the seventeenth century, is seen from the following complaint. Quote, "'Tis not their practice in Germany, as with us in this kingdom, to bind an apprentice for seven years. Three or four is their common standard, and the reason is because they are educated from their cradle to something of employment which renders them the more apt and docile, and consequently the more capable of attaining to a ripeness and quicker proficiency in business.' whereas our youth, here in England, being bred to nothing before they come to be apprentices, make a very slow progress and require much longer time wherein to reach the perfection of accomplished artists. End of quote. Footnote. A Discourse on the Necessity of Encouraging Mechanic Industry. London, 1690, page 13. Macaulay, who has falsified English history in the interests of the Whigs and the bourgeoisie, declares as follows. The practice of setting children prematurely to work prevailed in the seventeenth century to an extent which, when compared with the extent of the manufacturing system, seems almost incredible. At Norwich, the chief seat of the clothing trade, a little creature of six years old was thought fit for labor. 
several writers of that time, and among them some who were considered as eminently benevolent, mention with exultation the fact that in that single city boys and girls of very tender age create wealth exceeding what was necessary for their own subsistence by twelve thousand pounds a year. The more carefully we examine the history of the past, the more reason shall we find to dissent from those who imagine that our age has been fruitful of new social evils. That which is new is the intelligence and the humanity which remedies them. History of England, Volume 1, page 417. Macaulay might have reported further that extremely well-disposed amis du commerce in the seventeenth century narrate with exultation how in a poor house in Holland a child of four was employed, and that this example of vertu mise en pratique passes muster in all the humanitarian works à la Macaulay to the time of Adam Smith. It is true that with the substitution of manufacture for handicrafts, traces of the exploitation of children begin to appear. This exploitation existed always to a certain extent among peasants, and was the more developed, the heavier the yoke pressing on the husbandman. The tendency of capital is there unmistakably, but the facts themselves are still as isolated as the phenomena of two-headed children. Hence they were noted with exultation, as especially worthy of remark, and as wonders by the far-seeing amis du commerce, and recommended as models for their own time and for posterity. This same Scotch sycophant and fine-talker, Macaulay, says, We hear today only of retrogression and see only progress. What eyes, and especially what ears! End of footnote. Still, during the greater part of the 18th century, up to the epoch of modern industry and machinism, capital in England had not succeeded in seizing for itself, by the payment of the weekly value of labor-power, the whole week of the laborer, with the exception, however, of the agricultural laborers. The fact that they could live for a whole week on the wage of four days did not appear to the laborers a sufficient reason that they should work the other two for the capitalist. One party of English economists, in the interest of capital, denounces this obstinacy in the most violent manner. Another party defends the laborers. Let us listen, e.g., to the contest between Postlethwaite, whose Dictionary of Trade then had the same reputation as the kindred works of McCulloch and MacGregor today, and the author, already quoted, of the Essay on Trade and Commerce. Footnote. Among the accusers of the workpeople, the most angry is the anonymous author quoted in the text of An Essay on Trade and Commerce, containing observations on taxes, etc., London, 1770. He had already dealt with this subject in his earlier work, Considerations on Taxes, London, 1765. On the same side follows Polonius Arthur Young, the unutterable statistical prattler. Among the defenders of the working classes, the foremost are Jacob Vanderlind, in Money Answers All Things, London, 1734, the Rev. Nathaniel Forster, D.D., in An Inquiry into the Causes of the Present High Price of Provisions, London, 1767, Dr. Price, and especially Postlethwaite, as well in the supplement to his Universal Dictionary of Trade and Commerce, as in his Great Britain's Commercial Interest Explained and Improved, 2nd edition, 1755. The facts themselves are confirmed by many other writers of the time, among others by Josiah Tucker. End of footnote. Postlethwaite says, among other things, quote, we cannot put an end to those few observations without noticing that trite remark in the mouth of too many, that if the industrious poor can obtain enough to maintain themselves in five days, they will not work the whole six. 
whence they infer the necessity of even the necessaries of life being made dear by taxes or any other means to compel the working artisan and manufacturer to labor the whole six days in the week without ceasing i must beg leave to differ in sentiment from those great politicians who contend for the perpetual slavery of the working people of this kingdom they forget the vulgar adage all work and no play have not the english boasted of the ingenuity and dexterity of her working artists and manufacturers which have heretofore given credit and reputation to british wares in general what has this been owing to to nothing more probably than the relaxation of the working people in their own way were they obliged to toil the year round the whole six days in the week in a repetition of the same work might it not blunt their ingenuity and render them stupid instead of alert and dexterous and might not our workmen lose their reputation instead of maintaining it by such eternal slavery and what sort of workmanship could be expected from such hard-driven animals many of them will execute as much work in four days as a frenchman will in five or six but if englishmen are to be eternal drudges tis to be feared they will degenerate below the frenchman as our people are famed for bravery in war do we not say that it is owing to good english roast beef and pudding in their bellies as well as their constitutional spirit of liberty and why may not the superior ingenuity and dexterity of our artists and manufacturers be owing to that freedom and liberty to direct themselves in their own way and i hope we shall never have them deprived of such privileges and that good living from whence their ingenuity no less than their courage may proceed End of quote. Footnote. Postlethwaite, Loco Citato, First Preliminary Discourse, page 14. End of footnote. Thereupon the author of the essay on trade and commerce replies, If the making of every seventh day and holiday is supposed to be of divine institution, as it implies the appropriating the other six days to labor, he means capital, as we shall soon see, surely it will not be thought cruel to enforce it, that mankind in general are naturally inclined to ease and indolence, we fatally experience to be true from the conduct of our manufacturing populace, who do not labor, upon an average, above four days in a week, unless provisions happen to be very dear. Put all the necessaries of the poor under one denomination, for instance, call them all wheat, or suppose that the bushel of wheat shall cost five shillings, and that he, a manufacturer, earns a shilling by his labor, he then would be obliged to work five days only in a week. If the bushel of wheat should cost but four shillings, he would be obliged to work but four days. But as wages in this kingdom are much higher in proportion to the price of necessaries, the manufacturer who labors four days has a surplus of money to live idle with the rest of the week. I hope I have said enough to make it appear that the moderate labor of six days in a week is no slavery." Our laboring people do this, and to all appearance are the happiest of all our laboring poor. Footnote. An essay, etc. He himself relates on page 96, wherein the happiness of the English agricultural laborer already in 1770 considered. Quote, Their powers are always upon the stretch. They cannot live cheaper than they do, nor work harder. End of quote. End of footnote. But the Dutch do this in manufactures, and appear to be a very happy people. The French do so when holidays do not intervene. Footnote. Protestantism, by changing almost all the traditional holidays into workdays, plays an important part in the genesis of capital. End of footnote. 
but our populace have adopted a notion that as Englishmen they enjoy a birthright privilege of being more free and independent than in any country in Europe. Now this idea, as far as it may affect the bravery of our troops, may be of some use, but the less the manufacturing poor have of it, certainly the better for themselves and for the state. The laboring people should never think themselves independent of their superiors. It is extremely dangerous to encourage mobs in a commercial state like ours, where, perhaps, seven parts out of eight of the whole are people with little or no property. The cure will not be perfect till our manufacturing poor are contented to labor six days for the same sum which they now earn in four days. End of quote. Footnote. An essay. 4C, pages 15, 41, 96, 97, 55, 57, 69. Jacob Vanderlind, as early as 1734, declared that the secret of the outcry of the capitalists as to the laziness of the working people was simply that they claimed for the same wages six days' labor instead of four. And a footnote. To this end, and for extirpating idleness, debauchery, and excess, promoting a spirit of industry, lowering the price of labor in our manufactories, and easing the lands of the heavy burden of poor's rates, our faithful Eckert of capital proposes this approved device, to shut up such laborers as become dependent on public support, in a word, paupers, in an ideal workhouse. Such ideal workhouse must be made a house of terror, and not an asylum for the poor, where they are to be plentifully fed, warmly and decently clothed, and where they do but little work. Footnote. Loco Citato, page 242, end of footnote. In this house of terror, this ideal workhouse, the poor shall work fourteen hours in a day, allowing proper time for meals, in such manner that there shall remain twelve hours of neat labor. End of quote. Footnote. Loco Citato. The French, he says, laugh at our enthusiastic ideas of liberty. Loco Citato, page 78, end of footnote. Twelve working hours daily in the ideal workhouse, in the house of terror, of 1770. Sixty-three years later, in 1833, when the English Parliament reduced the working day for children of 13 to 18, in four branches of industry, to twelve full hours, the judgment day of English industry had dawned. In 1852, when Louis Bonaparte sought to secure his position with the bourgeoisie by tempering with the legal working day, the French working people cried out with one voice, The law that limits the working day to twelve hours is the one good that has remained to us of the legislation of the Republic. Footnote. Quote, they especially objected to work beyond the twelve hours per day, because the law which fixed those hours is the only good which remains to them of the legislation of the Republic. End of quote. Report of Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1856, page 80. The French Twelve Hours Bill of September 5th, 1850, a bourgeois edition of the decree of the Provisional Government of March 2nd, 1848, holds in all workshops without exceptions. Before this law, the working day in France was without definite limit. It lasted in the factories fourteen, fifteen, or more hours. See... Des classes ouvrières en France pendant l'année 1884, par M. Blanqui. M. Blanqui, the economist, not the revolutionist, had been entrusted by the government with an inquiry into the condition of the working class. End of footnote. At Zurich, 
The work of children over ten is limited to twelve hours. In Argo, in 1862, the work of children between thirteen and sixteen was reduced from twelve and a half to twelve hours. In Austria, in 1860, for children between fourteen and sixteen, the same reduction was made. Footnote. Belgium is the model bourgeois state in regard to the regulation of the working day. Lord Howard of Weldon, English plenipotentiary at Brussels, reports to the Foreign Office May 12, 1862. Monsieur Roger, the minister, informed me that children's labor is limited neither by a general law nor by any local regulations, that the government, during the last three years, intended in every session to propose a bill on the subject, but always found an insuperable obstacle in the jealous opposition to any legislation in contradiction with the principle of perfect freedom of labor. And the footnote. What a progress since 1770! Macaulay would shout with exultation. The house of terror, for paupers of which the capitalistic soul of 1770 only dreamt, was realized a few years later in the shape of a gigantic workhouse for the industrial worker himself. It is called the factory, and the ideal this time fades before the reality. End of section 5 Join the wellness revolution at sawgoodsounds.com. For $10 a month, access our exclusive library of ad-free meditative and ambient sounds. Elevate your mindfulness practice and wellness journey today. Experience the difference at sawgoodsounds.com.